Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I have a very special pleasure today in introducing Professor Richard Norgard to the podcast. Richard is a Professor Emeritus of Ecological Economics in the Energy and Resources Group at the University of California, Berkeley, and a founding member and former president of the International Society for Ecological Economics. Richard is an environmental pioneer, one of the founders of, and a continuing leader in the field of ecological economics, whose recent research addresses how environmental problems challenge scientific understanding and the policy process, how ecologists and economists understand systems differently, and how globalization affects environmental governance. Richard's an eclectic thinker, and he received the Kenneth E. Boulding Memorial Award in 2006 for recognition of advancements in research combining social theory and the natural sciences. And for more than 40 years, he's been a strong voice calling for the introduction of values of spirituality and beauty into economics. Thank you very much, Richard, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda uh, podcast. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you and hearing uh, uh, all about really the development of ecological economics, uh, why it's important, uh, what it's about, and uh, in line with you know where we are today in in terms of what's happening uh, with climate change and and the environment in general. And I'm extremely pleased to be here and um, give this podcast a shot. Excellent. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you? Uh, first began uh, your work in ecological economics and what was the, 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 the conventional thinking at the time and how did you end up, um, you know, moving along on the trajectory that you did? Well, my, my own history is, is pretty special. I have a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, which is the, you know, the center of neoliberal economic thinking and or at least it was in the 60s 70s and 80s yes and you know i took courses with milton friedman the whole thing but i did not go to the university of chicago to become a part of the priesthood of neoliberal economics i you know so somewhat by chance that i got in and even greater chance that i got out rather quickly with a phd my own background was as a as an environmentalist, as a river guide, as a river guide in an extremely beautiful canyon called the Glen Canyon on the Colorado River that was flooded by Lake Powell. And this is in the early 60s, 62, 63. And I became so mad that, that I knew I needed to, to get into the field to try to figure out why these things happened. And I loved biology, but there we are. And, uh, you know, biology is cool, but biology wasn't the problem. People are the problem. And then you start thinking about people and, and it's clearly, you know, the economics is, is the biggest thing happening. It's what's really driving change. It has been driving change for 150 years. So I decided to study our economic beliefs and what we might do to begin to change them. And 
you know, in Italy, was I was in the University of Chicago. I it's not like I just bought everything up, but I was able to regurgitate it fast enough to get out successfully. And uh, and this was the beginning of the environmental movement. I went into the Chicago at sixty eight and was hired at the University of California in nineteen seventy. There was a great demand for environmental economists and. I was literally the only environmental economist in the whole United States from a top school. There are a lot of people studying benefit cost analysis that were in agricultural economics departments, but I actually had environmental credentials and a University of Chicago credential. And at that time in 1970, we were talking about the limits of markets and market failure. And market failure was what I wanted to study. What are the, why do markets break down? But very quickly, the market failure turned into how can we make markets work better? How can we make them work everywhere? We just need to perfect the system and make markets work everywhere. And that's when I knew I needed to abandon environmental economics and go elsewhere. Right. Right, because on the face of it, environmental economics sounds, you know, it's about the environment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but environmental economics was trying to apply economics to the environment. So it was just extending right. economic yeah. thinking to the environment. So they, so they were using the same assumptions, the underlying it, economics. Because you talked a little bit about the, this idea of that, that uh, economics is driving change. Um, what are you getting at there, Richard? Well, that, you know, we've, we've, from 1800 to now, we've had a sevenfold increase in population. But if you look at the world market production, it's gone up more like a hundredfold, or I can't remember the numbers. I'm, I'm bad at remembering numbers, but it's, you know, it's more than an order of magnitude larger than population growth. And I'm not saying we don't have a problem with 7 billion people on the globe, but we have a much bigger problem with just all of the economic activity that's taking place and a fair amount of it being quite superfluous. Right, right. And, and, and uh, I know you talk about uh, econ econom economism. Is that, what, is that the word you use? Or, um, economism, economism. Economism, yes. Uh, what does that mean and why is that important? Well, you know what environmentalism is. You know that there's a thing called environmental science and then you know there's environmentalism. And environmentalism is a political movement. Environmentalism is nearly a religion to many people. It's just their whole view on life is that we need to, you know, work on our environment and save our environment. And economists are not really like environmental scientists. They're more, they're much more like environmentalists. They're, they really are talking about saving the economy, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, they, they have deep seated beliefs about about economic thinking and about our economy and and so economism is is the word I use to 
say, you know, there's something really different about economics as compared to environmental science. Um, one way to get at it quite quickly is to look at ecology. Ecology has about eight different patterns of thinking. There's food web models, there's predator-prey models, there's evolutionary ecology models, there's landscape thinking, landscape ecology, there's energy flow thinking, there's, there are different, there's hierarchy thinking. There are just different ways of thinking about the complex system of, of the ecological system around us. And in some ways, economics is the same way. We have different patterns of thinking. We have partial equilibrium economics or market thinking, and we have general equilibrium thinking, and they're different. We have Keynesian thinking, we have monetary thinking. There's institutional economics. Um, so there's just these different patterns of thinking. And yet, somehow, out of different patterns of thinking, economists argue over what is the right answer. And how can that be? Different patterns of thinking do not give you a right answer. They give you different insights into the complexity of the situation we're in. And when ecologists are out in the field together, they will look at what they're looking, they'll talk about what they're looking at from their different theories. Um, we don't see that among economists. Economists have asked, been asked to sort of be a priesthood and inform us of what's the right answer, to inform presidents of the right answer. Um, it's a very complex system and we do not have the right answer. We can only talk about what we see through our theories. So if they're giving right answers, it's it's got to be much more of a belief system than a, a system of logical models of science. Right, right. I, I suppose to some extent there's a question about the kind of questions that are being asked. What questions does eco ecological economics uh, look at that maybe uh, conventional economics maybe doesn't? Well, conventional economics assumes that technological progress will allow unlimited resources so that we can grow and grow and grow. And ecological economics definitely has a, a limits philosophy and you could say that's just a little bit religious to say that there are limits, that technology is not always going to save us. But, you know, you do have to have, you do have, to have assumptions. And what are your ultimate assumptions as you try to think through the complexity of the world? And is it better to start with, gee, maybe there are limits to what people can do? Or is it better to say there are no environmental or ecological or resource limits? And the ecological economist goes on the side of, there probably are limits. And we see those limits in sort of water pollution. You can pollute the river a little bit, but you pollute it enough and it starts damaging the ecology and you pollute a little bit more and it's undrinkable. 
And there's no sharp line, but there's certainly problems. And, you know, it's pretty common knowledge now that climate science and the climate we're now observing is demonstrating that we're going through a wholly new climate system that is behaving differently and will continue to behave differently because of atmospheric physics and ecological responses. Those are real things. And ecological economics tries to take those, you know, the reality as the natural scientists understand it much more seriously than does conventional economics or even, even environmental economics. Right, that's very interesting, uh, and it's very important, uh, particularly given the, the you know, the as you say, the the, the current uh, climate uh, problems and, and and other environmental problems. Um, it, it seems that often uh, many environmental factors are treated as externalities um, in economics. There's certainly a lot of that around. Is that a useful way of looking at things, and does that generate insights? It, it definitely generates insights, and it was a very powerful insight in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And it was a pattern of thinking that you know, almost wholly consumed me almost you know, 45 years, well, it was 45 years ago. But it, it doesn't get us very far. And basically, to call it an externality is to suggest that it needs to be internalized. Internalized into what? Internalized into the market system. The, the basic difficulty is that markets, in order to work, assume that everything could be divided up into separate parts and owned as property and traded as goods. And that atomistic assumption separateness idea is extremely important to Western science and economics picked it up and it you know it is the basis on which we live we have property in our most of our economies today but the facts are that things are interconnected in lots of different ways and not not easily divisible and when we had a a world with just a billion people in it, we could pretend that those connections weren't important. But in a world with seven billion people and an economy just going crazy, those connections have been extremely important. So that assumption that it, that you can internalize something that's external is is a limit, and it's a limit that we have passed that we do need to pay attention to the connectivity of everything. And that just requires a whole lot more sophistication and awareness of connectivity and ready to respond to that connectivity, which a lot of our institutions, property and many of our governance institutions, our, our bureaucracies are all divided up on different lines of, you know, forest services and water services and sewage treatment services, but they're all interconnected. And it's that interconnectivity that is plaguing us, how to come to grips with it. 
Right, right. And how does ecological economics uh, approach the question of interconnectivity? Well, I think it's it is a limits of the market idea, and it's also a limits of governance as everything all. You know, we can have separate bureaucracies dealing with separate problems that that has come to its ultimate limit. And ecological economics is talking about developing much more transdisciplinary knowledges. And we have, you know, more interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary education going on in the United States. But at the same time, we have narrowing in to you know, biotechnologies and very small, well, biotechnologies are very interconnected complex fields, I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> but we're not treating all of its interconnections appropriately. And, um, but it's, it, it, it just means we need to slow down and spend much more human energy on understanding the complexity and being ready to respond to interconnectivity and complexity than the system we have now. So, you know, this is now getting into how I think about it because other ecological economists will say, oh no, we'll just keep, you know, internalizing externalities. There's, there's not a sharp line between what is ecological economics and what is environmental economics. I mean, it's sharpened my mind, but if you look at the field, you know, the whole field of ecosystem services is, is basically the economic idea applied to ecological systems. So, uh, taking the, your particular slant and, um, you know, where your thinking uh, brought you, um, uh, maybe, um, I know you work in, in the, I'll say that again, uh, I'm trying to frame a question because that last point you made uh, to how you're, you're entering into the area of how you think about ecological economics, I suppose the question is, um, you know, can you talk a little bit more about how you see the distinction? Um, boy. I mean, this is... This is the stuff that I try to write whole books on, and you're asking for a podcast. <laughs> so, 22 years ago, I published a book on what if, I mean, to, to try to describe it quickly, what if Darwin came before Newton? What if we thought of the world as evolving and changing? But not just evolving, but co-evolving, everything evolving in response to everything else. And it's not a world of prediction and control. It's a world in which things are changing around us and they're changing in part because of our involvement in the system. And I didn't have the word Anthropocene when I wrote the book. <clears throat> that That was... You know, Kutzen was another four or five years after I published, but um, this is the Anthropocene. This is a world driven 
partly by humans, but partly by everything else interacting with us and us interacting with everything else. <clears throat> and that world, as I try to envision, um, what would be the best way to organize around such a world? I, I ended up arguing that on the one hand, we needed <clears throat> clear global governance to cover global problems like the release of greenhouse gases into the bios of the atmosphere and I'll try, try to control the biosphere responses. But at the same time, I just said, geez, just a lot of these changes are local and you need to deal with them locally. And you need a lot more local governance as well. And so you need a very polycentric system of governance that's strong on all those levels and responsive to each other. And, and it gets very messy. It's not top-down, it's not just bottom-up, it's polycentric. And Eleanor Ostrom also talked a lot about polycentric governance. <clears throat> but, and I'm using her term, um, but it, I end up arguing we need to just spend a lot more time observing and thinking together and responding to our environment and to each other as problems arise. And that the meaning of life is not to own things, but to be a participant in this thinking, responding, shared learning system. And so you, you just have to change around what the meaning of life is about. You're in a group, you care about each other and you care about what the environment is doing to each other. <clears throat> and you, you, know, you use your intelligence, you use your native abilities to observe, but it's also much more about group learning and understanding than the idea of one big smart Einstein figuring it all out. Yes, that's quite revolutionary. Um, idea. It gets pretty radical, yeah. Um, <laughs> and. Um, you, you you talk about um, well, I suppose the stands in stark opposition to the idea of the individual utility maximizing individual <laughs> at the heart of economic systems. Yes, yes, that that reliance on the idea of the individual was very much a reaction to the top down church and. Regal's king structure we had before before the Enlightenment, basically, and <clears throat> with with the success of the natural sciences with atomism, we kind of transfer that into <clears throat> individualism in the social sciences and build up the idea of democracy out of out of individual action. But the Enlightenment assumed that everybody was becoming enlightened also. And, you know, individuals as everybody enlightened would be great if we were all Einsteins. We're not all Einsteins. And we do have the problem of expertise. But then it's not just that we need expertise, we need everybody. 
And, and so somehow we have to learn to share what we, each of us knows and what each of us can observe. And that's a different picture than the one we have of progressive governance and experts in government, you know, figuring out what, what the answers are. And yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I guess there's also a, a strain of thought that says that um, well, if everybody has part of the solution, then uh, markets allow them all to bring all the information, all the relevant knowledge together to solve these problems. <laughs> In one price, yes. And, but one price constantly changing as we constantly adjust. Yes. Uh, so and I think, I think the problem is, is that the markets don't actually they average what we know, but they don't blend what we know. They do not, they do not complement what we know. They do not build on what we know. So it's just an average, and an average of a of a lot of individuals can be pretty stupid. But you get a lot of people in the room, and and they start talking to each other, and they can start figuring stuff out, and. And I think that's the really important difference. Yeah. So how, how does the this what is the connection between these assumptions and these economic models, traditional economic models, and the way the world runs? It may seem like a pretty uh, a pretty silly <laughs> silly question, but you know, you, you, the GDP, and as you talked about, you know, the government managing you know economic growth and things like that, um, but. We're not beholden as a society to enact any of these ideas necessarily, are we? Or, or how are we? What is the connection? Well, we see? are beholden. If I mean, the market and its various governmental institutions that prop the market up is the greatest faith system ever constructed in the world. The greatest? It's, it's faith. Faith, yes. I mean, it's not as old as the Catholic Church. Yes. But it is far, far greater and bigger and more pervasive. And if we didn't believe in the system we have, if we start thinking that markets weren't going to work tomorrow, um, those of us with property and those of us with the land would start planting crops immediately. But of course, we really couldn't produce all of our food, and a lot of people don't have don't have property; they have a flower pot and. So we have to have faith in this system we have, and that faith is underlying it. I mean, it's absolutely critical. So there's a whole bunch of belief systems that make it work. And economics is taught in grammar school in many places all around the world now. It wasn't when we were children, but it, it is now. It has been for 20, 30 years. Uh, Religion, you know, other religions are not taught, but this faith system is. And it's, it's absolutely critical. When 9-11 when happened and George W. Bush said, go out and shop, um, you know, we all laughed. Except that, you know, it was probably pretty good advice. If we stopped shopping for a week, it could have sent the economy into a turmoil. If we stopped shopping for a week and actually sat down and thought about the mess we're in, you know, that could be disastrous. 
So it is a faith system. Why and is it a faith system? Why is it a faith system? Do you believe in it? Do you need to believe in it? Is it? Um, if you, but if you don't believe in it, why aren't you growing your own food? Well, there are aspects of it that probably um, that you you know that they aren't. Um, what am I going to say? Um, well, maybe I. I um, so this idea of believing in the system, um, <laughs> I suppose you can believe in it. It depends what it means by believing in it. I suppose that there's certain aspects of it that work for one, and um, whether or not. An, an individual needs to think, believe any of the assumptions underlying it. Um, they know they can go and get a job or whatever it is without necessarily thinking too much about, you know, how that system's supposed to be constituted or how it would change or something like that. Um, um, maybe we're going down a, a, a bit of a, uh, it, it, as you say, it's a podcast. It's quite a big question to, to try and, uh, try, try and address. But I think it's quite interesting. You were talking about uh, local governance um, and local systems. Do you see the emergence of uh, local governance, local uh, ways of organizing that gives you uh faith or optimism in in the possibilities um and how these might spread uh well i i live in the state of california and we have some of the most advanced climate change uh, legislation in the world and we have 38 million people living in this state it's you you can't quite call it local it's bigger than half the countries in the world but it is, well, maybe I, that's off the top of my head. I'm not sure about that statistic. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's bigger than all of Scandinavia combined. And, uh, you know, we, we think it's important to take a leadership position because we think this is really important. I can't say that everybody thinks that way, but enough of us do that we are setting out to set up a system of reducing our emissions fairly rapidly. And then I live in the city of Berkeley, which is a quite a republic of its own. Um, <clears throat> and it has its own efforts to reduce waste, to take care of the poor on its own, to try to be more socially just. And, um, you know, there's more hybrid automobiles running around Berkeley than, than Tokyo. So, uh, <laughs> not more, but a higher proportion. Um, so yeah, there, are, there is action at the, at the grassroots and at the, you know, regional level that is critically important. And I, I think it has to be that way. In the state of California, we have our own problems. We're maybe going into the sixth year of a drought. Uh, we had a little bit of a, a normal year, but a normal year. <coughs> Excuse me, I should have brought some water out here. <coughs> a normal year in California just gets us by. We're, we're used to 
either wet years or dry years and normal is abnormal. It's, it's a little trough in the, in the distribution, bimodal distribution. So we've had five, four years of drought years, a normal year, and we're not sure what's ahead, but it doesn't look good. We've got to solve these problems ourselves. Um, and we're slowly facing up to them. There's much more recognition than there was just three years ago that we're not going to have as much water probably in the future. We certainly have to be ready for that. And how we're going to get ready for that is not clear. But we're, we're, we're working on it. So are ecological ideas spreading from... I mean, how, well, how, is, how is that all developing? Are, are they... Yes, I don't, I don't think it's because of... E I mean, I'd love to say ecological economics is causing all of the new thinking, but of course, ecological economics is just a part of all that new thinking. Um, reality is beginning to strike here and there. The state of California for 100 years has been mining its groundwater and for at least the last 80 years has been building dams to capture water on the argument that if we deliver water to the farmers by irrigation methods, they won't keep mining the groundwater. But they did. They just kept expanding. But we're, we're near out. The groundwater basin is, is not a long-run solution. And we're coming to grips with that. I mean, it's just... It's, yeah, reality does strike. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these warnings came earlier and we did not pay attention. But, you know, I, I do think we're in a situation now where reality is striking pretty strongly, certainly in the state of California. So we finally have groundwater legislation to move us towards sustainable groundwater use. But it's it's going to be a three-decade, five-decade process. Right, right. Where does economic growth fit in? Well, I think most ecological economists firmly believe that you can't just grow and grow and grow on a limited planet. The Earth is only so big, and there's just no way you can just have more and more stuff circulating and going into waste dumps. <clears throat> There's limits to the minerals pulling, pulling them out of the ground. Maybe not physical limits, but environmental limits, that we produce more and more environmental damage as we go to lower and lower quality stock resources. And those environmental problems keep piling up and getting worse. So. We, we have to figure out how to run an economy that isn't a growing economy. And it's so difficult to listen to our politicians saying, yes, we'll get out of this mess, we'll just grow the economy faster. Um, the, the economy has not been growing faster for quite a while now. And uh, we're still here. And maybe we'll figure out how to redistribute the benefits of the wealth that we have with an economy that's either growing much more slowly or, or not growing at all. There's been 
you know, insignificant growth in real wages for the working classes since 1972. And the working classes have managed. The rich can too. Are you optimistic for progress and change? I get up each morning and keep working. <laughs> there, I don't know why people have hope, but we, fortunately, we have hope. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Um, that's been uh, very interesting and uh, very stimulating. And uh, I wish you the very best with your continued research and work. And um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. Yes, I fear I might have gone out of my depth. It, it, quite a challenging thing to try and uh, squeeze through a, uh, a, a lens because um, I really only decided at the last minute to focus more on this than some of the broader questions. But I, I do think it is uh, fascinating. And you know, I, I think we covered some good ground there. I'm, I'm pleased with the ground we covered. I, I yeah. don't know if you're going to be able to tighten that into a... Yeah, I can cut out a couple of my, my bits, of, a bit about the, the, the faith-based system. Um, are there any other just questions I can cut in later? Is there anything else that you think relevant? I mean, I know you work in the area of water, um, and you, you, you're just wondering whether or not looking at things through an ecological, economic lens gives you new ways of looking at or dealing with water issues in a way that you might not if you're approaching it. And I guess that's something I didn't really get to is that by putting this, I'm trying to get some concrete sense maybe of by what is different when you start to put this ecological lens on things. I mean, the people are doing research, there's models emerging, there's some interesting thinking, but how does that actually impact either policies or, uh, yeah, execution. Okay, I serve on the state of California's Delta Independent Science Board. Uh, Delta isn't some magic word for you know, high level. Excuse that telephone. Call from Sherman. Okay, let's get back on track. <clears throat> yes, I serve on the state of California's Delta Independent Science Board. And Delta here stands for Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, which is central to the whole California water system. And I can't go into all the complexity as to why, but it is complex. And we have many, many agencies, federal agencies, state agencies, there are water agencies, environmental agencies, water quality agencies, fish agencies, agencies dealing with water rights, um, all involved in trying to keep the California water system uh, functioning and improving, correcting its problems, but also how do we get it to move towards the future, to think about the Anthropocene. And as a part of the Delta Independent Science Board, or related to it, I also serve on an editorial board of a an occasional study that's called the State of Bay Delta Science. And it's a summary of the science. There's one in 2008, and we're putting out one in 2016. And 
we try to bring all the science together and say, where are we? And uh, on the editorial board of that, I started the process pleading to my other editorial board members that we, we need to ask the scientists, is the state of science good enough for the problems we see ahead? And my other editorial board members said, oh, no, they don't think that way. They do their science. They've got their projects. They, and I said, well, we really need to get the scientific community to think that way more than they have been. Oh, yeah, well, we'll see what comes out. Well, you know, many authors working together on many 17 chapters or so. We look at the product at the end, and I raise these questions again. And we all agree that, gee, this is all nose to the grindstone science. This is all, you know, we've got this question that we're trying to answer, and we're not looking... 20 years ahead, 50 years ahead, 100 years ahead, as we design our research and do our interpretation of the results. And, you know, my, my co-editors sort of agreed rather, rather dramatically. And in our own synthesis, we point this out. And it becomes, in fact, the more interesting thing of the whole report. And the report gets translated for policymakers. And in the translation, there's all this rather nose to the grindstone science. And then there's our observations that, gee, maybe we're not looking 20, 50 years ahead like we ought to be. And that's what gets reported to the policymakers. So, again, it's it's just being in a position where I can influence how how scientists are looking at what we're you know we are doing and you know beginning to get a, a word in edgewise. So yeah, it's it's my years of working on how do we think together, how do we think together about the future ahead rather than what we've been doing in the past. Very interesting. And is that a, a sense in which the ecological constraints you're, you're, you're asking, you know, looking into the future and thinking, well, is this, you know, what are going to be the constraints in the future? Is that a particularly ecological? How would that be looked at in a traditional economic model sense? Well, let me go back to your constraints, because, yes, there are constraints, but there are also new opportunities. As the world changes, are we going to be ready to take advantage of, of some good things. And, and yet we have all kinds of language about conservation biology, restoration ecology, invasive species. All those things are trying to save a past. And those, that language of the natural sciences as if there's a nature out there is getting in our way of how we think about working with a changing future. And it's just those words that I pick up on and, and say, if those are the words we're using, we're not, yeah, we're not going to be prepared to help species that need to come into the Delta, for example, as refugees from 
climate change elsewhere. And, you know, there are things that are built into how we think, even as natural scientists, that are getting in the way of, of working in the Anthropocene. Right. There is a certain, uh, I guess, West Coast uh, tradition of, of uh, techno-optimism, I suppose, that technology will, uh, I know you're not talking about that, uh, no. you know, that, that, that technology will, will solve all the problems and actually, you know, it, it also technology will be embedded in, 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 in climate change solutions and there's a whole growing uh, body of work really isn't there about about this idea of the anthropocene if we are changing the climate um and and there are negative impacts well we can change it and 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 you know have some positive impacts yeah um technology is certainly going to play a role there's no doubt about it and and i guess i'm not as good at, at understanding just how that you know, the potential of, of the new biotechnologies might play in. I'm certainly, you know, concerned about the downsides of the new technologies, the possibilities of creating superhuman beings, and you and I are just uh, serfs in a system. But, um, yeah, there, there certainly will be ways in which we will be able to work technology in. But we really need to be ready for the realities are there. And economists are, are just not there at all. They're still talking about, you know, climate change with economic growth and optimizing economic growth within the climate change system. And that's it's just we're not there yet. There's this big question of consumption, consumer economy, um, and you know, stopping it's it, slowing that down, changing that. Not, I mean, in some ways, it's not even consumption because you can have a a beautiful work of art with, that you consume every single day. You can you can own nice plates and silverware that your grandparents had that are that are works of art that you consume every single day. It's really this throughput. It's just this constant purchasing more and more material goods and throwing out material goods and, you know, having storage areas for material goods, filling up your garage with material goods and parking your car out on the street. Um, it's just craziness. Does ecological but, economics look at that at all? The consumer side of things? Yes, yes. This whole side, well... Again, I it you know we usually think of it as consumption, but it's really best to think about it as throughput. Throughput. How much stuff is are we just circulating? I suppose I use that in the sense of consumer society as in massive. Yeah, as it is massive. Changing what we're what we're yeah, but yeah, we can certainly have a consumer society with without. You know, going to the <clears throat> the big box store every other weekend. Excellent. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. 
please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.